You like it? No, you know. Five weeks in a row. No, oh, wow. Well, it wasn't five weeks in a row. It's supposed to be five weeks in a row, but last week didn't quite work out. So um, I'm glad you guys are here today, by the way. I don't know if last week you had a great time uh, staying home and shoveling snow, which weighed a ton. So um, I was blessed last week because uh, I decided after I got here, Nate and I were here at six o'clock and trying to make decisions about closing and everything. And we did pretty quickly. It was a pretty easy decision. And and then left here about 8.30, made sure nobody showed up extra that morning, and nobody did that I know of, and um, got home, and so I decided not to shovel, shovel snow till like 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon, which, you know, by that time, and I knew the kind of snow this was, because uh, this is what I call East Coast snow, this is the kind of snow I was used to growing up, I mean, everywhere on the East Coast, when I went to Virginia, where I was there, uh, North Carolina, all the different places when there was snow, was always that heavy, wet snow, and so I knew it was going to be back-breaking, and then... So I waited as long as possible, because I'm the kind of guy that has to have my driveway clean, not just partially, I has to be clean. And so I got out there, and I was so blessed, because my neighbor, a couple of houses down, works for Midwest Equipment, has a great snowblower, and came over and had mercy on me, and uh, did most of my driveway for me. And then Wednesday, another member of our church uh, uh, came over, and he called me, you know, Wednesday afternoon, I was coming home, and he says, I just started shoveling, he says, Bill have you done your driveway yet? I said, I'm just getting started. He says, I'll be over there in two minutes. And he pulls up in this big tractor with this giant blade. And five minutes later, my driveway's done. And, you know, I'm going like, wow, that's cool. So I thought about driving, uh, doing a snowblower, but then I found that I have a friend who has a, has a tractor. So <laughs> no more snowblowers. What was that all about? I don't know. I, we weren't here last week, so I have a, you know, I, I prepared this message two weeks ago, so I didn't look, actually this past week I've looked at what we're going to be doing next week, uh, but I don't, do want to let you, Nate's already let you know a little bit, but if you want to get a little bit ahead and read ahead, we're actually going to cover a portion of scripture that's hugely important uh, starting next week for six weeks. It's John chapter 13 through 16, and if you want to get a, go ahead and read that, uh, let me ask you a question. If you knew, this is about next, the next series, if you knew that you only had a few days to live, and you had the opportunity to sit down with your closest friends, your family, and talk to them about the things that were most important in life, what would you say? That's exactly what John 13 through 16 is. Jesus, the first 12 chapters of John is about Jesus saying, you know, this is how you have eternal life, and the last uh, chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16 is about how, how to have abundant life. Uh, the life that's real. And so he was, after three years of teaching and being with his disciples, Jesus teaches them. This is all takes place in the upper room uh, there right before his, uh, his uh, crucifixion. And so the, they are the famous last words of Jesus right before, he, uh, right before he goes to the cross. And so, I mean, he knew he was going, and so he was telling them important stuff. So that's what we're going to talk about, the important stuff that Jesus said uh, in his last words. And John is the one that records those in John chapter 13 through 16. So that's your assignment, read chapter 13 through 16. We'll just look at the first part of 13 next week. Okay, Lord willing to no snow. Um, so we'll see how that works. Okay, we're in the last week of a series uh, called Breathing Room. And Breathing Room, let me give you an update. Breathing Room means this. Breathing Room is a space between our current pace and our limits. Uh, the reality is, as we've talked about this for the last several weeks, is our greatest regrets could probably have been avoided if we had some financial, moral, relational breathing room in our life. And some space between where our current pace is and where the limits are. 
And all of us have limits in life. We have some of them are self-imposed limits. We grew up with a certain way. You learn to manage money a certain way. You learn to handle uh, relationships a certain way. You learn certain things. Some of us have, have also what we call spiritual limits as well. You've learned some things through your spiritual walk with God that allowed you in a real sense to change and maybe broaden some of those limits. Another limit we have is we have the law. The law will only allow you to do certain things. If you break the law, that's a limit. Uh, that's a limiter in what you can do. Now today we want to talk about an area of life, and this is why I saved it to the last, that, and it was so important, and that's why I decided not, not to go ahead and go ahead with the next series, but to postpone that and start and finish this one this week. Today I want to talk about what I believe is the most needed and most resisted area of all in setting limits. It's the area where our culture pushes us in a direction and says, go right up to the limits, live right on the line, and never worry about that. But it's wrong. It's an area where if we were to get this one right, this area of life, get it right, it would transform our culture. We would have less poverty. We would have fewer unwanted pregnancies. We'd have fewer men in prison. We'd have thousands of children who would be tucked into bed each night by both their fathers and their mothers. We'd have less domestic violence. We'd have fewer children in foster care. Our inner city culture would be totally different if we got this one right, this, this, this next one we're going to talk about today. And while it's possible to fully recover from financial decisions, you can fully recover from those if you make bad decisions. While it's fully possible to recover from professional disaster, from neglecting your health or, or marriage problems, sexual sin is unlike any other sin that we have, that we commit. Not because it's more offensive to God, but because of the damage it does to you. Uh, as, as, and looking at this, there's generational damage. It transitions through seasons of life and memories, STDs, reputation, guilt, and the inability for many people to have intimacy later on in life. And it goes underground for many people and services many, many years later. It always complicates things. Based upon that, that is why Paul, and this is where we're going to be today, so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we're going to look at just three verses of Scripture that Paul talks about this whole thing. He says, based upon the fact that this has such an impact, he says this. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality. Now, you read that and you're going like, yeah, that's what I want my wife to do. And if you're a wife, you want, that's what I want my husband to do. And if you're a parent, you go, that's what I want my kids to do. Employers hope their employees will do that, flee from sexual immorality. If you're engaged, you hope your fiancé will do that as well. But so often what happens is while we have that, that tendency, that desire for, for the people around us to flee from sexual immorality, sometimes what we do instead of fleeing from it, we flirt with it. We get too close to the line. That's what we're going to talk about today. This breathing room is a space between what we do, our actions, and the limits of stepping over the line. And for this, this area, more than any other in culture, I think baits us to the edge because our culture is so, so, it's changed so much too uh, over the years in regard to this. It pushes people, it mocks them, and then when we step over the line, we, get all, we, we act like we're surprised, you know, like, well, she's pregnant. Well, you know, too bad. Yeah, you know, I don't know about you guys, but uh, some of you are too young to know this, but let me just tell you, this is the advantage of being old. Um, you go to the mall now. I don't like to go to the mall. I hate shopping. But the couple of times recently I've been to the mall and walked down the mall and I go by certain stores. And when you're there, and the stores that really cater to teenagers, the pictures of what is encouraged in teenagers to wear nowadays, do you know who wore those clothes 50 years ago? 
Hookers, yeah, some of you said that. It really is true. And then we wonder why teenagers have such a problem, teenage boys, teenage girls, have such a problem with sexuality and with dealing with, you know, of pushing the lines and pushing the limits all the time. You know, I, you know our, our, we have people that say, well, I think my husband maybe spent a little too much time on the internet. They might have a problem. And they say, well, honey, come on in here and watch Dancing with the Stars with me. Because there's nothing provocative about that. I might be stepping on some of your toes right now, but that's all right. Um, and when's the last time? And, and the other thing is this. I mean, most of us, we entertain ourselves with affairs. Me too. We entertain ourselves with affairs. When was the last time you watched a TV show or a movie where there was any kind of, especially movies, there was any kind of a intimacy, we'll call it a sex scene, even if it was not very vivid, where it, in, it involved a married couple? Tell me, think about it. When was the last time you actually saw a movie that said that? They go, that's gross. Who would want to see that? It's like watching my parents, you know? I mean, the last time I was listening to a, a, a series by Andy Stanley called Guardrails, which our small group's getting ready to do, and, it, and some of the same thing uh, it talks about as well. And the thing was, is he said, you know, he said in here, you know, the last time he saw a movie that did that was, was Rocky One. Y'all remember that? Rocky One, the 45 second kind of love scene in there and it was kind of like oh it was rocky and he goes hey adrian you know and uh it was kind of gross because they're kind of like you know rocky was all sweaty and you know whatever <laughs> and we entertain ourselves with affairs and we're disgusted when somebody actually has one we do we do so we push the limits all the time. We say, go as far as you can, but don't get pregnant. Go as far as you can, but don't break the law. Go as far as you can, but don't get addicted. See, we are wired. I believe this is true, and I think we all know this is true. This is what we talked about in the series. We all know this is true. We are wired in such a way that we want to know where the limit is and the temptation is, and we want to live right on the line. And let me prove it to you right now. How many of you, when you go on the road and you, on the interstate, uh, the speed limit now is 70, right? Uh, it keeps changing. I never can keep up with it, Okay. Let's say it's 70 on the interstate. And you see the speed limit sign. How many of you, when you see that sign, goes, and the speed limit's 70, so I'm going to go 60? <laughs> Any of you do that? If you are, you're strange. Because what do we do when we see that? We say, well, the speed limit is 70, but it's not really 70. It's 75 or, you know, or maybe 10 miles an hour, so I'll go 78. And then we go that fast, and all of a sudden, this guy with this blue light, usually it's a guy, sometimes a girl, with this blue flashing light or red flashing light, whatever state you happen to be in, pulls up behind you, and you pulls you over because you're going over the speed limit, and you've, you've stayed at 70, all of a sudden you've drifted down a hill and you're going 84. And you're going like, how did that happen? It's because we push ourselves to the limit, and it's sometimes beyond with that as well, don't you? So we're all guilty this morning of that. We live lives, life on the limits. And, and, and another thing, you know, when you were a teenager, I know some of it, for me, it's hard to remember that far back, but I do remember that. Um, when you were a teenager, and I don't know what kind of house you grew up in, but a house I grew up in and a house my kids grew up in had curfews. We had curfews. And, uh, and when you had a curfew and you had, your parents said, uh, if they're a real lenient parent, you, have, you, get, to, you get to stay out till midnight. What did you think about your curfew? When you said, you know, I get curfew at midnight, did you come home at 11 o'clock? No. Never. What did you do? 
You said, I'll come home as close to 12 as possible, and sometimes you slipped over the line. Now, in my household, that was a problem with my kids growing up because there was consequences. There were heavy consequences. If they were over past the time, the next time they went out, they got an hour deducted from their curfew. Only, only happened a couple of times with my daughter. She was a strong-willed child in the family. But the reality is we pushed that that way as well. I mean, I mean, how many of you guys, okay, we'll talk about teenagers. How many of you guys are, 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 are women as well that you work, work in the business world and you tell your husband or your wife, well, I'm going to be home at 6. So you always try to make sure you get home at 5. No, you make shoot for 6 and 6.15 or 6.30 or whatever because, you know, it's, there's not huge consequences there. Now, and if you're counting calories, if you do that kind of thing, if you're counting calories, do you simply say, well, my calorie contact, you know, I can only have 1,300 calories. I don't believe in that, by the way. But if, you, if, you, um, but if, if, but if you're uh, counting calories and you get 1,300 a day, what do you do? Say, so, well, I'm only going to use 1,100. No. What do you do? You use 1,300 plus. Every time you do that because we want to push the limits, Right? We believe we have to live up, we, we don't know where the limits are, wherever the line is, our tendency is to go there and to stay there. Now, that's not a problem if you go over the speed limit five or ten miles an hour. There's no huge consequence, right? A ticket is not a huge consequence, unless you do it enough. <laughs> you go over curfew, and unless you live in my house, there's no huge consequence, uh, you go over a few calories in your diet, there's no huge consequence. But let me tell you this, listen to this. You, go over, you cross certain lines morally, and you pay the rest of your life in some cases. You cross certain lines morally, and kids grow up without a dad or a mom in the home. You cross certain lines morally, you can lose your job. You can lose your reputation. One mistake in this area can make all the difference, not only in your life now, but in your life in the future. That's why we need space in between the place where we draw the line and the limits. And so that's why Paul says, after he says this thing about, you know, flee sexual temptation, flee sexual immorality, he goes on and he says this, and I wish he'd gone further and explained this, but he didn't. But then he says this, he says, all other sins people commit are outside their bodies. But those who sin sexually sin against their own bodies. What he literally does here is he places sexual sin in a different category. Not that it is unforgivable, but there is a level of consequence, he's saying, that accompanies sexual sin that is so different that he places it in a totally different category. He's saying there is a personal consequence to sexual sins that runs so deep. Not only are you sinning against the people you are sinning with, but you're sinning against yourself in a unique way when you sin sexually. And I can tell you this from 34 years of ministry experience, that the people I have counseled over the years in this, that sometimes uh, sexual sin carries scars throughout people's lives. It carries memories. It carries a view on life from some people that distorts all their life and all the relationships that follow that. There's a relationship between psychological health and moral decisions. Poor moral decisions affect a person psychologically. It doesn't make them crazy. It's not what I'm saying. But what it does, moral decisions impact a person's relational health. A man or woman who sins sexually, especially for a long period of time, struggles in all their relationships and can take years to overcome the consequences of sexual sin. That's what Paul's saying here. 
He's saying, no, this is not an unforgivable sin. He's saying, though, but because of the consequences of sexual sin, let's place it in a different category. Because the consequences are huge. huge. So Paul's advice is kind of common sense. Flee. Flee. But then he goes on. He says this. And, and, and this is for Christians. The next part of what he says is de- definitely for Christians. He says this. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you? Whom you have received from God. He's saying for Christians, not only is our, should our, uh, the thing that we do that drives us is to realize the consequences, but also he says, you are not just yourself. and you, it's not, You're not just about you anymore. It's about who, who you are, whose you are. You're God's. See, God lives in you. He put himself there. Your body, your physical body is holy. It's sacred. It reflects the image of God. And then he goes on and he says this. He says also in, in verses 19 and 20, he says, you're not your own. You were bought at a price, talking about the price that Christ paid upon the cross. Now, I love what C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite writers, uh, said in a book called Mere Christianity that maybe some of you have read before. But Mere Christianity, he says this, and I was reading this the other day, it's why it came to mind. Uh, just an excerpt from it, he says this about how much God wants of us. Because the struggle that we have so often in life is this. We, we become a Christian, and we think that God just wants a part of us. You know, we want to give him this part, this hour on Sunday or this, this little bit of our life. But the thing is, that's not true, what Scripture says. This, and C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, God says this, give me all of you. I don't want so much of your time or so much of your talents and money and so much of your work. I want you, all of you. I have not come to torment or frustrate the natural man or woman, but to kill it. <laughs> that's pretty violent, isn't it? No half measures will do. I don't want to only prune a branch here, a branch there. Rather, I want the whole tree out. Hand it over to me, the whole outfit, all of your desires, all of your wants, all of your wishes, all of your dreams. Turn them all over to me. Give yourself to me, and I will make you a new self. In my image, give me yourself, and in exchange, I will give you myself. My will shall become your will. My heart shall become your heart. So God says, and what he's saying here, and what Paul is saying here in this passage, you're not your own, you're bought with a price, means God doesn't want us a little bit, he wants all of you. And that means not just, just your thoughts, just your act. he wants your actions, he wants you, you to, not, to treat your body, not just, a, just something good, but something that's a temple that actually holds God, that God dwells in. And so he ends this little passage of scripture by saying it this way, therefore, honor God with your bodies. Therefore, honor God with your bodies, not just with your thoughts, not with an hour on Sunday. Honor God with your bodies as well. Now, you have to decide how important that is to you. You do. I mean, how many of you ever gotten up in the morning and looked, at, looked in the mirror and goes, you know, uh, you know, have you ever decided to honor God with your body and said, you know, my body is a temple? Probably never said that, right? It's kind of weird. And you might have said, you know, the temple is growing. You might have said that. You probably didn't use the word temple, but you know. See, what he's saying here is this. What comes next, what he's saying here is that you need to understand some, some things about living for God. It's not just about a little bit of your life. It's about all your life. And, and part of that is your body, how you treat it, how do you abuse it. And it's not just about food. It's also sexuality as well. Now, what comes next is for only those who want to honor God with their body, this next two suggestions here. Um, it will seem unnecessary and extremely extreme otherwise if you don't understand this. So before you tune me out, I want you to think about two things. 
I want you to think about two things in regard to sexuality. In regard to this whole thing of, of sexual things, how do you want your spouse, your future spouse, or your kids to manage this part of their lives? Do you want them to live on the edge? Right on the border and be easy to step over the line. Is that what you want your spouse to do? They want them to flirt and not flee? Do you want your kids to do that? Is that what you want? That's what, that's what culture says. If you follow culture, culture will lead you right to the edge every time. And if you live on the edge and you step over the line, if you get into trouble sexually, do you think you will pray for God's help? If it's an unwanted pregnancy, an STD, an affair, fear of discovery, whatever, an internet addiction, whatever the thing may be, do you think you will pray, even if you're not a Christian, for God for help? Let me answer that question. Yes, you will. Yes, you will. You will pray for God. You God, God help me. And you know what God will say if, if, if you ask him that and you've been here this morning? He will say, I talked to you. I told you what to do through that guy with a microphone on his head. Because he pointed to God's word. And God's word in 1 Corinthians 6 verses 18 through 20 says, flee from sexual immorality. And fleeing is not what you've been doing. So why are you turning to me to help? I gave you the help. I pointed you to Scripture. I told you to line out some things to help you to understand that. So, for the remainder of our time this morning, for the next few minutes, what I want to do is give you some practical guidelines about how you can do just that. Set some limits. Set some action, uh, some space between, have some breathing room between where you are and where the limits are. So you won't easily step over the line. Now, these are made, uh, made up based on real stories and many years of ministry experience and listening to other pastors and all these different things as well. They're not in Scripture, but I think they're valid, okay? They're valid. Uh, but not only have I been a senior pastor for here in another church, so a total of 25 years, I was also a youth pastor for 10 years. So I've worked with teenagers and adults and all kind of people. Now I'm a big person pastor. I used to be a teenager pastor, so that's kind of the deal. So first I want to talk to teens. Teenagers, how do you set limits? Number one, pre-decide how far you're going to go. Pre-decide how far you're going to go. Either you set your limits or your date will push you to the limit. And you're going like, well, Pastor Bill, you, you don't understand. You've been, it's been about 100 years since you've been in high school. You don't understand the whole deal. No, it's only been 40-plus years since I've been in high school. But I have a 26-year-old and a 32-year-old, and I'm around kids all the time, okay? And this is what I've heard. Well, you don't understand how it is there because everybody does it. They don't say what it is, but I, we all know what it is. The problem is that's not bared out by facts. Matter of fact, I thought one of the most interesting surveys, I love surveys, that, would, that are done well, one of the most interesting surveys that was done in 2005 by that bastion of conservative thought, MTV. <laughs> and it was actually reported in Time magazine. is a survey done for thousands of teenagers and sexual activity in schools. And this is what it had to say. And this is MTV now. This is not, you know, Christian Science Monitor, okay? It said that 56% of teenagers say they want to abstain from sex before marriage. 56%. That means more people in school don't want to have sex before marriage than do. 
You're going like, well, that's not the way. Let me tell you something. Nobody brags about waiting. I mean, how many people have you ever had a conversation with who come in and says, guess what we didn't do last night? Right? And plus, let me tell you something else. Now, I don't know how girls do it because I've never been a girl. Don't plan on it, even though it is possible nowadays. But I have been a boy. Boys lie. They exaggerate. They make it. So at school, when you think everybody is doing it, not really. And once again, you pre-decide what your limits are going to be or your people you go out with, people you hang out with, will push you to the limit. And limits need to be more than just, I, I want to wait to have sex until I'm married. Because there's a lot of things, between a lot of steps between, hi, how are you, and sex. So set the standards high and build breathing room and let them laugh if they laugh at you because ultimately I will tell you from personal experience and from counseling teenagers over the years and adults who've done it, you will have the last laugh if you set your standards high. Married people, let me talk to you for a few minutes. Don't chat online with people of the opposite sex. Don't do that. You're going like, well, it's just inst-. No, 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 no. Now, guys, we think that intimacy starts with sex. It ends there. But it doesn't for women. Intimacy is listening and being understood. And so sometimes, I cannot tell you how many people have talked about this whole problem there. I mean, t- folks... Don't look up your old boyfriends and girlfriends on Facebook. What, what do you do? Why would you do that? You know? Number two, don't eat alone with members of the opposite sex. You're going like, no, don't eat alone. No, 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 no. If you're married, don't eat alone with members of the opposite sex. You're going like, we well, don't understand. In my business, we've got to do that. Well, begin to pray that God would shut that down because I believe our God is bigger than your business. Because I will tell you that that's where affair... I can talk to... Over the years, nobody said to me when they come into my office and counsel or they come into other people's office and counsel and they say, well, you know, my first thought was when I saw this girl, I was going to have an affair with her. Or I thought this guy was going to have an affair. That's not where it starts. It starts sitting down at a casual place, and meals are one of the casual places and having conversations one-on-one, and people, it starts there. Number three, don't travel alone with members of the opposite sex. If you have to, do everything you can to stay as far away from each other as possible. (laughs) And I know you say, let me tell you how extreme that is in ministry. We have rules here. Great Oaks. I can set these rules, and I've had it on other staffs before, because I've seen too many pastors fall through the woodwork because they've broken rules. And one of the rules is this. Do not travel. If you're in in youth ministry, when I was in youth ministry, I would not take a girl home by myself. Ever. I get somebody else, another lady to take her home, or whatever like that. Not simply because anything was going to happen, but because I cannot tell you how many times it starts with simple conversations And you allow things to escalate from there. So folks, it is foolish. It is foolish to do that. 
And the biggie is this. Don't confide in or counsel members of the opposite sex. Get them help. Don't be their help. But he needs me. No, he doesn't need me. He he needs help or she needs help, and you're not it. You're going like, Pastor, don't you care? Uh, I care more about my relationship with my spouse than I do that, and I will get the person help. Yes, I'm in the caring business. But I have some, we have some strong guidelines here at church about counseling. Women, let me explain something to you. If you come to me or any other staff member, this is my personal thing, but I kind of encourage this for all other staff members, uh, and, and really this is a rule that we all abide by. No lady will come in and counsel with us in the office unless there's somebody else in the office. And guess what we got in all our office doors? Windows. Because I cannot tell you over the years how many times it started as innocently as that when a counseling office, because all of a sudden, gosh, this is amazing. Believe this. I didn't know this for a long time. That a woman would come in and sit down, and I would listen to her, and she thought it, was, and it became like a fantasy. And I'm going like, really? That's not how we think. But it was for her. And so it's a huge thing. And girl, ladies, don't do it with guys. Guys are, you know, it's just not healthy. There's no help. I cannot tell you how many. I have a, I have a new, a few years ago, I started a new thing. And I started this because I know one of the things is I will listen. I will have a counseling session, one session with a woman that's going through a stress, stressful time. And if that person, if it takes more counseling, I refer immediately. And I used to go over to the blend all the time and, and sit down and have a, and, and try to study there and stuff. But when I quit doing that, and I haven't done it in a long time, it's because then after I was there for a time, then a couple of ladies came by, individually, not together, and said, can I sit and talk to you? And I said, how about making an appointment? I'm busy. And, they got, well, and I'll tell you a few years ago, another thing that happened to me, and that's how important this is, is there was a couple back when we had the office over, over down the street, we didn't have this building and everything and all the things were going on. I had a couple that wanted to come by and do counseling with me, marital counseling, that's what they said. And I get there in the evening by myself to meet this couple, and the lady shows up. And the lady looks at me, and she says, well, my husband said he wasn't going to come. And I said, well, we'll have to reschedule. And she got mad, and they left the church. But I was willing to come back. I was willing to get her other help. I was willing to... But let me tell you, folks, it's that important. It's that important that we set some standards far away from the limits. Oh, no, there wasn't anything about sex, was it? But it was talking about building a relationship that was not built in the right way. So if you're married, let me tell you, this is a, this is a clue as well. If you're married, you should know where you're... You should, uh, know where your spouse would like your breathing room, where your limits are, so they can help you be accountable for those. Single people. I don't know what to tell you. Let me just tell you this. Single people, uh, gouge out your eye with a spoon. <laughs> you know that's biblical? Mark chapter 9, read, read it. It talks about if something offends you, cut it off, you know, gouge up, pluck out your eye. And I'm not saying do that. Okay, do not do that. But we live in this culture, guys especially, like I say, I think girls are that way somewhat too, that it's so vivid, uh, you know, imagery and stuff, and, and it's just horrible. And so it's a tough deal. So just forget about that one. That's, not, that's kind of fun just to give you a chance to laugh. But... Um, Here's the real one. Apply the married people's guidelines in your relationship with married people. 
If you're single, treat married people. This is, this is a great deal. Treat married people, if you're single, treat married people like you would want your future spouse to be treated or to treat you. See, when you get married, I guarantee you, if you're single, this is, let me, advice here, if you're single, when you get married, you will not want your husband hanging out with some cute young thing saying, let's have coffee and, and asking questions. Can you explain this to me? You don't want your husband doing that. And why? And, and, and husbands, you don't want your wives hanging out with some stud who's going through a marital problem. You don't want that to happen, right? So single people, you treat married people off limits. And you just do the things, like I said, the things, same guidelines. You decide, I don't travel with or have meals with married persons of the opposite sex. And I don't confide in, and this is, this is a big no-no so often in culture because this is the problem so often. We do not say to guys, don't confide if you're single. Don't confide in or counsel married persons of the opposite sex. And some of you are doing this. You have a friend as the opposite sex, and you're going like, they're going through a tough time, and i got to meet with them because nobody understands them like I do. And you know what happens when that happens and somebody comes to you and they, they, they confide in you? You know, you feel so valued and you feel so, you feel so uh, smart because they're listening to you and, and you want to do that. And they, when they sit down and pour their heart out to you, if they do that to you and it's somebody of the opposite sex who's married and you're single, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. And I've had people say, well, pastor, you don't understand. I prayed. I go into that session with this friend of mine of the opposite sex, and they're married. Yeah, I know. But, you know, uh, I go and I prayed. I said, God, give me wisdom on how to point him or her back in the right direction to their spouse. And I'm going like, you don't understand. That's not the issue. It's foolish. It's foolish. Get them help from someone else. Okay, a couple other things, real quickly to singles. No sleepovers. Sleepovers for eight-year-olds. I mean, I've had too many people that are single as adults, and they'll simply say things like, well, it was convenient for me to stay over at their house, her house last night or his house last night because, you know, da, da, da. and they'll go into all this junk. I'm going, it's convenient there, and everything else that goes along with it's convenient as well. That is not setting your limits far enough away from going over, or your actions far enough away from going over the line. It doesn't work that way. And then finally, let me just say this. I know there's some, there's some people some uh, people who are single who have been, who've lived a single lifestyle for a number of years and then recently came to Christ. And you're going like, you know, and for you, for many of you in the single lifestyle, for most people in America, dating means sex. It does. So if you've been through that and you've come to Christ and you want to honor God with your body and you want to do something different, what you might need to do is you need to take a relationship break. You need to take a break that's extensive, maybe a year or two years, to detox from your past life so your future won't look the same. I've had people that have done that over the years and have talked to me years later and said, I thank you for that because it allowed me to get away from that, that lifestyle that I was in, break those habits so I could get back into a different type of lifestyle. Now, the conclusion is this. Is this extreme? I don't think so. I don't think it's extreme. 
It's common sense. Honestly, do you think he will look back five years from now and regret the kind of decisions to do this? You won't. I mean, you won't look back and wish, I wish I had more sleepovers. Wish there were more people in my life I hope I'd never run into again. Especially if my spouse is with me. Is it extreme? Not, if, if you were married, by setting these kind of limits, that's how you have an extremely awesome, you're the only one for me kind of marriage. Great ma- romance in marriage is fueled by one thing. Exclusivity. You are the only one for me. I only have eyes for you. I'm not sharing my heart or anything else with anybody else. That's how great romance is fueled in marriage. So you have to decide. Follow Paul's advice, flee, or follow culture, flirt. Stay on the line. To flee is to honor God with your body. But to do that, you need space between the limits where they are, of stepping over the line and your actions, and it has to be far away from there. You choose. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for this day and for the many blessings you give us. I pray that you would allow us this morning to realize your word. Just these three little verses here in in, uh, 1 Corinthians are so powerful because this is not the only place in Scripture that that we read these things. This is not the only place in Scripture that talks about the danger of, of stepping over the line sexually. God, we would pray that you would just enable us right now, each one of us to make right decisions, whether we're teenagers or we're married or we're, or we're single, that you'd help us to understand some things that, that will help us in a real sense to not get too close to the line so that we can honor you, God, with our bodies and also that we cannot have the consequences of bad moral decisions. Guide us, God, this day in all that we do and say that we would just in a real way Desire more than anything, God, to give you all of ourselves, not just a little bit of us, but all of ourselves, as you desire for us to do. And that includes what we do with our bodies as well, God. Thank you, God, for your word and what Paul has to say here in 1 Corinthians. And it was not just an issue today, God, it was an issue even back then. And so we pray that, that, that we would, as, as believers, understand that, God, you will give us the power, empower us to do the things that would, that would allow us to honor you with everything in our life. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.